This morning, though, as we do come to our time of worship and the time of preaching God's word, we have the privilege of indeed going to Colossians in order to see um, a model for intentional prayer, specifically Paul's model for intentional prayer for fellow believers. As scripture establishes the priority of prayer, it always gives us examples also. We're never left to wonder what does that look like. The pattern shown today in today's text comes, of course, from the Apostle Paul. And he prays as a man of expectation because he is certain that God is both willing and capable to answer the prayers of those who call out to him. And so, indeed, I do invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message I have titled, A Prayer of Expectation. I will only expound verse 9 and part of verse 10, but for the sake of context, I do want to read verses 9 through 14. So please stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able. Colossians chapter 1. beginning in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. Few of us would dispute the priority of prayer, but few of us would also sanction the priority of prayer in our own lives. Despite all the sermons, all the studies, and all the books devoted to the initiative of creating a stronger prayer life, prayer remains one of the most neglected habits of grace in the Christian life. Prayer is not a priority in the Christian life because the Christian life is not a priority in prayer. I'll say that again. I truly think that prayer is not a priority in the Christian life because the Christian life is not a priority in prayer. For prayer for so many people is only a means to submit request to God. But prayer is more importantly a means for us to submit our relationship to God. When the priority of prayer is only to ask God to fulfill our wants and fulfill our desires, The only time we will pray is when we want something or desire something. Prayer, though, I would say, both establishes our relationship with God and expresses our relationship with God. Prayer establishes our relationship with him by affording each of us the opportunity to reveal ourselves to God. Not that he doesn't know, but it gives us the opportunity to reveal not merely only, only our desires, but our struggles and our joys our toils, and our labors, sharing our very hearts with him. Think of our human relationships with one another. As we share about ourselves with others and we see that that other person both cares and that person is trustworthy with the information we share, 
our desire is to share more with that person. As we reveal ourselves to God, prayer also disposes our revel- this, us to his revelation to us. Prayer softens our hearts, preparing our hearts for the work of his spirit. Thus, prayer establishes our relationship with God, in which we share with him and he shares with us. However, I would say it's also an expression of our relationship to God. The deeper of our relationship with God, the more willing we are to pray. It is an expression of our belief in him. It is an expression of our confidence in him. And it is an expression of our reliance upon him. As Derek Prime and Alistair Begg write, prayer is the principal expression of our relationship to God. Perhaps the priority of prayer is lost not only because we have abandoned the primary purpose of prayer, but because we have suppressed the privilege of prayer as well. When prayer is reduced to simply making requests, we concern ourselves more with the outcome of prayer rather than with the process of prayer. And why does this distinction even matter? Why would I bring that up? Why would I say that that even has an impact on the discipline of prayer? First, because if the outcome is all that we desire, and if God doesn't respond with the outcome that we do desire, that we want, we will pray less. We trust God less, and we turn to him less. Furthermore, it impacts our satisfaction of prayer. If prayer is more about getting what we want, we will only be satisfied if God answers with what we want. Instead, our satisfaction comes not in the outcome, in the process of prayer because that is where the privilege of prayer lies in the process of developing a relationship with God I would tell you that prayer is not merely a petition to God or to petition God but to prioritize God the moment of prayer causes us to pause whatever we're doing and in that moment to acknowledge both his presence and his purposes prayer is not merely a moment to petition God, but to also praise God. In praising God, we are compelled to remember who God is, to recall what God has done, and to respond with words of acknowledgement to what he has done. And finally, prayer is not merely to petition God, but prayer is to plead on behalf of others to God. Prayer is an opportunity for us to intercede for one another, to pray and lift up the body of Christ. It is an opportunity for us to love our fellow believers, to carry the burdens with them, and to influence the body of Christ. Paul not only calls for intercessory prayer, saying, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, But then we see that Paul also relies on those prayers from other people. To the Philippians, he writes in 119, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. To Philemon, he says, prepare a room for me, because I hope your prayers will deliver me to you. To the Corinthians, he asked for help not through finances, not through words of encouragement, but through prayer. Prayer, then, is also an expression of our relationship to one another. How we pray and how often we pray for one another 
shows the authority of God in our lives and the affection we have for other people in our lives. By praying to God, Paul acknowledges both this authority and the power and the work of God, and he also acknowledges his own affection for the very people he is ministering to. By praying for people, Paul acknowledges that his affection for the people in his life, and by praying, he's forsaking his time, time that could be dedicated to any other task, and instead he allows it for prayer for those people. He even shows his care further by foregoing his own prayer request, not praying for himself, but praying for them. Notice the time that he spends in prayer just in Colossians. Apart from the first two verses of the introduction, these first 20 verses of chapter 1 are all of Paul's prayer, his prayer for the Colossians. And this is a theological treaty just in itself. And what he's doing is casting attention on both their faith and the object of their faith. It begins with an attitude of praise, which we've already gone over in verses 3 through 8. An attitude of praise in which he gives thanks to God for God's work in their lives and their life's work for God. It's evidenced by their faith, hope, and love that he gives thanks for. But now Paul turns his prayer from praise to petition, asking not for the fulfillment of their physical wants, but for the fulfillment of their spiritual needs. I want you to note first the catalyst of prayer. In the first part of verse 9, we read, And so, from the day we heard, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Regardless of where Bethany and I ended up in ministry, we always had two conditions that we shared with every single elder board. One of those that we would get to serve with Biblical Ministries Worldwide in a capacity that would support them and support whatever church we were with. So in this past September, I met with Andrew Bunnell, the director, new director of BMW, to define what that role would look like. And at that time, he gave me a title. The title is Partnering Catalyst for the Pacific Northwest. The idea is that I am tasked with the responsibility of overseeing a church planting ministry in the Northwest. And one of the primary goals is to indeed be a catalyst, key word, as in an instigator or a motivator for church planting in the Pacific region. This is a work of a catalyst to cause a reaction, to initiate an activity. The initial part of verse 9 in our text reveals the catalyst of Paul's prayer. It shows the reason for his ongoing labor in prayer. It shows his motivation. It instigates prayer in his life. And we look first at the connection, the phrase that says, for this reason. For this reason ties this part of Paul's prayer to the previous part of his prayer, the previous part that we already talked about, that we've already expounded upon, in which he thanks them, thanks the Colossians for their faith, hope, and love. It seems out of context in this text. Paul just spent the previous six verses telling them and lauding them, praising the Colossians for who they are, for their hope in Christ, which is evidenced by their faithfulness to him and their love for one another. 
it would seem then that the Colossians don't need any more prayer. But that's not how Paul responds. Instead, he says, for this reason. Or you could say, he's saying, because you've already proven your faith, your hope, and your love, I'm going to pray for you even more. Having praised the Colossians for their reaction to the gospel, he prays now that they will continue to respond to it. In fact, it's likely the positive nature of their testimony that motivates the intensity of Paul's prayer here. Had they been neglecting their faith, it would be easy to become discouraged, praying only in a half-hearted manner, or not even praying at all. Why pray if they're not even doing? But Paul's prayer here is passionately specific. And as N.T. Wright has noted, Paul is able to pray in this way with great confidence because he has seen what God has already done. Paul prays now because he's already seen what's taken place, because he has seen their knowledge of God displayed in their faith and hope. He can pray with the expectation that God will fill them with more spiritual knowledge and more understanding. Because he has already testified in the previous verses to their bearing of fruit, he can now pray with the expectation that they will bear more fruit. And so he prays that they would be fully pleasing to God. The motivation of Paul's prayer is emphasized by the constant nature of his prayer. Notice that he says we pray unceasingly or we haven't stopped praying for you. This concept came out this morning in Sunday school, and if you weren't there, it would have been a good time because the connection with what we learned about Nehemiah and his constant prayer to what we see in our text today is quite extraordinary. This constant nature of prayer, and certainly we don't mean that Paul was on his knees 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but rather that his lifestyle was one of prayer. Chrysostom comments, not for one day do we pray for you, not yet for two, nor three. By this, Paul shows his love. The nature of prayer is unceasing, as we know from 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Because our battles in the world and with the flesh are constant, our prayer should also be constant. Paul knows they will face ongoing solicitations to set aside their faith and their hope and their love in order to follow something or someone other than Christ. Therefore, because of the ongoing wars for their faith, Paul enlists in the ongoing war of prayer for their faith also. When someone is doing well in the Lord, it's not the time to pray less. It's the time to pray more. There is a lurking and significant danger in those moments when people are doing well, when they appear to be thriving most in the Lord. It is in those moments that people tend to let their guard down. They repudiate the need for accountability. They reduce their fellowship in the body of Christ, and thus they reduce their discipline of prayer. Because we stop praying doesn't mean that Satan stops working. Because we stop praying doesn't mean the flesh stops its enticements. And because we stop praying doesn't mean that the world stops its deception. Therefore, we don't stop praying for one another simply because someone hasn't requested prayer 
We don't stop praying for one another simply because we assume all is well for the other person. As the body of Christ, our prayer for one another is unceasing so that our relationship with Christ may also be unceasing. That's the catalyst of prayer. A desire to see fellow believers never be content, but always growing, always increasing, and always developing their relationship with him. Prayer is unceasing because we need unceasing prayer. I want you to note second, the content of the prayer found in the last half of verse 9. Paul reveals his prayer for the Colossians here saying, saying this, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Never is prayer generic. Every example we find in scripture is always specific to the circumstances of the person praying or the people being prayed for. After reading Paul's motivation, his catalyst for his prayer, now he reveals the specific content of his prayer. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. The consequences for lacking knowledge are severe. In Isaiah 5.13, Isaiah writes to Judah on behalf of God and tells them that their lack of fear results in their exile. Their lack of knowledge, forgive me, results in their exile. Proverbs warns that zeal untempered by knowledge leads to hasty action and sin. The pursuit of knowledge is meant to be a godly pursuit, a godly endeavor by leading people to God. For this reason, Hosea urges Israel, let us return to the Lord. Let us strive to know the Lord. But there's something special about Paul's prayer. And it's noted by his choice for the word used for knowledge here. Instead of the word gnosis that we often see in scripture that conveys a general knowledge, Paul uses the word epignosis. It's a more intense word that conveys a concept of acquiring knowledge and acquiring even more a comprehensive and thorough knowledge or a complete knowledge by actively participating in finding that knowledge. The difference between the two is doing versus receiving. Perhaps an example is, is something that we could use here. Look at our time here. The one, the gnosis, is that act or that passive sitting in the pew and just receiving the knowledge being given. But what Paul is using here is epinosis, as in the person did research, studied it, and is teaching that knowledge. They're gaining that knowledge by actively participating in the search for that knowledge, by studying and teaching. Second Peter 1, 5 through 8 conveys this concept. Reading those verses, we come to these words. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And then Second Peter 1.8 says this. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Peter ties the knowledge of Jesus Christ 
to the activity of Christ-likeness. To be like Christ is to know Christ. And he's saying one is participating, one is getting to know Christ by actively doing. This type of knowledge requires participation. It's not learned by mere intellect alone, but by doing. Interestingly, that word, that epinosis, is never used to refer to just general knowledge of trivia or general comprehension or the secular information. Instead, every time it is used in the New Testament, it only is used to speak of both religious or moral knowledge. In the case of our text, it's referencing knowing God's will. This is not a prayer to know my will or the world's will or someone else's will. This is a prayer to know God's will. Because it is of God, it cannot be obtained by human wisdom and understanding. It requires spiritual wisdom and understanding, as the text says, because it must come from God himself, imparted by the work of the Holy Spirit. Knowledge of this kind comes with great responsibility, because this knowledge does not come from the physical realm as information only. It comes from the spiritual realm, directly from God. Therefore, it pierces the heart. It stimulates the action of life transformation. And for this reason, Paul prays that they are filled with it. To be filled with something is to be under its control. Much like we talk about being filled with anger, we mean that person is under the control or under the influence of that anger. The concept is seen in Ephesians 5.18 when Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit. The idea is to be under the control of the Spirit. In Luke chapter 5, we have the account of Jesus healing. And I get it, this is a longer passage. Unfortunately, I don't have it on the screen. But I want to read Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. And if you want to turn there, I'll give you a moment to turn. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. It begins on one of those days as he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Verse 20, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, glorifying God. And then look at the response. 
Verse 25 says, And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So the first man glorifies God. Then verse 26 says, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Knowing God always demands a response. In this case, we see how they respond in being filled with awe. It's the same concept when Paul now prays, be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is not that they know the will of God. It's that they would be filled by the will of God. He desires that they know the will of God so fully with all spiritual wisdom and understanding that it controls them. Every life action, every decision, every movement results from an analysis and application of being filled with God's will, hence the understanding. A lack of knowledge is a scary characteristic in a deceitful world. False teachers seek to mislead the Colossian church, as we've talked about. And if the church there is not filled with the knowledge of God's will, they will live constantly teetering on the edge of succumbing to these dangerous heresies. It is necessary to live in the Spirit, because the Spirit imparts understanding. Read 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12. These things God has revealed through the Spirit. For the Spirit teaches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Therefore it is crucial that they seek the knowledge of his will through the spirit. That is Paul's prayer. Let that be the prayer we have for one another. May our unceasing prayer be that each of us would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. We cannot be satisfied by a superficial knowledge of the ordinary, but instead we must seek the supreme knowledge of the extraordinary. I want you to note finally, the consequence of prayer found in verse 10. The last part of our text this morning reads, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. As noted earlier, Paul prays with confidence. He's anticipating God's work. More importantly, he's anticipating God's continued work. It's worth noting that earlier in my introduction, I I said that part of the problem with our prayers is that we focus on the outcome rather than the process. And yet now I'm commending Paul as a, for praying as a man who expects an outcome from God. James tells us to pray with confidence that God indeed will hear and answer prayer. But the difference between what I said earlier and what we see here is that praying for what we want from God versus praying what God wants from us. The result of being filled with the knowledge of God's will is the ability to pray the will of God. The effect of Paul's prayer is 
not merely that they would know God's will, but that they would do God's will, hence that they would be filled or controlled by it. The knowledge of God's will always has ethical implications. It's always conveying the idea that those who possess such knowledge will act on that knowledge. In this case, that response we see in our text is to walk worthy of the Lord. To walk worthy of the Lord establishes the objective of the Christian life. It's not to walk worthy of me, walk worthy of others, or of the world. We will never please one another. I can't even meet my own standards, let alone having somebody else meet them. We will never please the world. But that's okay, because we're called to live fully pleasing to God. For this reason, Paul writes similar exhortations elsewhere, telling the Ephesians, I urged you to live worthy of the calling you received. He says more specifically to the Philippians, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. If the worth of our life is determined by the gospel, then certainly our life should reflect the worth of the gospel. Such worth is reflected by a life fully pleasing to God. And we'll dwell more on this next week as we continue on. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this particular thought. But we should force ourselves to meditate on that phrase, fully pleasing. You join those two words together, fully and pleasing, and it becomes an intimidating phrase that conveys the notion of completely and thoroughly pleasing God in every single way. That's a hard requirement. But thankfully, as we will read in verses 12 through 14, we have our Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator notes that self-satisfying Christianity is rarely gratifying. A genuine Christian finds genuine pleasure when he seeks to genuinely please God. Using a soldier as an example, Paul helps us to understand this in 2 Timothy 2.4. He says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The following verses, like I said, will more fully develop what that looks like. But for now, we need to simply know or simply understand the consequence of Paul's prayer. That by knowing God, the Colossians will please God by walking in his will. Paul prays not so that they will please him. Paul prays so that they will please God. This verse highlights one of the greatest privileges of prayer. The ability to positively influence the lives of those we love. Namely, our fellow believers in the body of Christ. What a profound model of prayer placed before us. How would our lives be differently, both individually and corporately, as a body of Christ, if this was how we prayed for one another? By following Paul's example, we see the catalyst of prayer. Paul shows us a prayer that is motivated by his love for others and a desire to see them continue living out their faith as they are already doing. We also see the content of his prayer, which is a call for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And we see the consequences of his prayer, that as a result of that very knowledge, the Colossians will walk worthy of their calling, fully pleasing to God. 
from this prayer, Paul has done just as I said prayer should do. Paul has established his relationship with God, and he has expressed his relationship with God. As we close, I want us to consider this. The hopeful expectation of prayer is driven by a heavenly expectation to pray. This morning we read from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. As part of his earthly ministry, Jesus repeatedly orders his words in a way to prepare the disciples for his impending departure. But he doesn't leave them without hope. Repeatedly, he calls attention also to his future return. And that's what he does in our text in in Luke chapter 21. He offers what could be considered a very frightening picture of the future, one in which nation will rise against nation. There will be earthquakes and famine. But then it says, and signs will be given. And there will be havoc on the earth. Then beginning in verse 25, he tells of his own return. And in verse 27, he says this, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So all these events culminate with the coming of Christ. But notice how he ends that discussion. He does so with a warning to not only be vigilant of one's walk so that they're not caught off guard by this incoming event, this impending day of his return. But then he says to his disciples in verse 36, Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus just connected the prayer life with one's heavenly life, with one's heavenly anticipation of what's going to come. In this case, prayer is driven by the expectation of Christ's return. I would tell you this morning that our expectant prayer is motivated by expectant waiting. Our prayer is a response to our longing for Christ's return. Our prayer is a response to our heart's aspiration to see God as Moses did. More specifically, the model of prayer presented to us this morning by the Apostle Paul comes from a heavenly mindset. The warning by Christ is to be watchful and to pray, guarding oneself against the influence of this world that he or she may be ready for the next world. Why pray like Paul? Because such a prayer for walking worthy of our calling is indicative of our desire for his return. Such a prayer anticipates the opportunity to meet our God. We pray to walk worthy of our earthly calling, that we may be ready for our heavenly calling. What we think about God will impact how we pray to God. Therefore, to pray with an attitude of expectation is to wait with an attitude of expectation. Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you, grateful that we can indeed come before you, that we can share our prayers, our heart's desire, Lord. And Father, we just give you great praise for who you are. Father, we pray that this would be our prayer, 
our prayer for ourselves, our prayer for one another, that we would desire to walk worthy of the calling. Father, I pray that you would just make that the prayer of our hearts. That in doing so, or first and foremost, that we would long to be with you. That we would long to be in heaven, Lord. And that that would indeed motivate our prayer to you. Father, I pray that this is how we would pray for one another. Draw us together as a church body. May we influence and impact the body of Christ by our prayers to you, just as you've called us to do, knowing or because we know and have confidence that you're capable and willing, that you hear our prayers and that you will respond to them, Lord. And so we give you great praise for the opportunity to pray this morning. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.